your Bible with you, we finally come to the last part of chapter 1 in Luke. Not every chapter will take this long, but it's a good chapter. One, one, one hobby I've always been interested in and wanted to try, but I've never really explored it or put any effort into it, I guess, is, is photography. I, I love pictures. Um, I mean, I love art and paintings and all that, but I love pictures of... Um, you know, I love European landscapes or the old world, you know, castles and ruins and things like that. Well, photographers have what is known as uh, the golden hour, they call it. It's the hour just after sunrise and then the hour just before sunset. And apparently it produces the prettiest shadows, the best colors for pictures. The best pictures, at least as far as light goes in nature, can be taken in this hour. We've come to the birth of John the Baptist in Luke this morning, forerunner of the Messiah who will be born here in chapter 1. And and like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who magnified the Lord with a song of praise in verses 46 to 55, Zechariah, old covenant priest and father of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, will magnify the Lord with a song of prophecy. Zechariah is going to take all the images of God's saving grace and glory from the Old Testament and bring them together to paint this beautiful picture of God's salvation that is dawning in the world in his day. Zechariah's prophecy will tell us that humanity is now in the golden hour of God's saving grace because the sunrise has visited us from on high. If you look around the world, if you turn on the news for less than a minute, less than 30 seconds, The picture of humanity that we'll get is increasingly bleak. It's desperately, increasingly evil. Don't be fooled by this. Don't be overcome by it. The sun is still shining from heaven. It is in these days of evil and wickedness and desperation that God has brought His salvation. Zechariah prophesies that John the Baptist will be God's messenger to announce that he is about to keep all his promises to save his people in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In keeping all his promises, salvation has dawned for us to receive the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the message it contains for us. God, I ask now that you would soften every heart, including mine, for your word, for this message. Enable me to speak in such a way that I not cloud it or cover it or make it hard to understand for no reason. God, please help me. Work through me in spite of who I am. Have your way in me and in this congregation. And Lord, I pray that you would open every ear for understanding, for receiving this precious word from you, from Zechariah in Scripture. Father, tune our hearts now. Make us able to listen. Make us willing to listen. And do the miracle of faith in us. I ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Verses 57 and 58 demonstrate the 
fulfillment of verses 13 and 14, right? That Elizabeth would conceive and give birth to a son. God was faithful to do what He had promised. And He had promised this barren woman who was well along in years, way past the normal age for giving birth, tucked away in the hill country of Judea, that she would give birth to the child who would prepare the way for the promised Messiah. Even her neighbors and relatives acknowledged that God had been merciful to her. Maybe these were some of those from whom she previously had suffered reproach for being barren, if you remember. Early in chapter 1, allegedly cursed by God for her or for her husband's guilt. It was customary for the family and close friends to gather on the eighth day following the birth of a male child for the circumcision for the Jewish people. This wasn't just a medical procedure, right? This brought a male child into the covenant with Abraham, grafting this child into the promise. It took place on the eighth day, suggesting in the Old Testament that incorporation into Israel included the end-time hope of life in the age to come. This foreshadowed the... Um, the eighth-day theology, if you will, of the early Christian church who worshipped on Sundays. They referred to it as the eighth day. It was a new day for them because that's the day when Jesus rose from the dead. It was the first day of the new creation, signifying the spiritual, true, and perfect circumcision outside of time in eternal life. But when it comes to time to name this little baby, let's pick up the passage here in 59, actually. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to her, or to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. So, the people are expecting here, they're expecting the baby to be named Zechariah. That's his father's name. That's the way it worked. That was the custom. But his mother answered in verse 60, No, he shall be called John. You remember, Zechariah had been rendered mute by the angel Gabriel because he didn't believe the angel's announcement that this birth would occur or could occur. And that word mute back in verse 22 carries the connotation that he was actually unable to speak, yes, but was also rendered deaf. But he is certainly shared with Elizabeth by this time, obviously by writing things down and communicating with her that the angel had told him in verse 13, you shall call his name John. This was strange. They all turned to Zechariah for an explanation. John was not a name that was in the family tree. And you don't break from tradition, especially when there are religious overtones to it. You don't use a name that isn't in the ancestry. They're signing all this to Zechariah trying to communicate that Elizabeth is making a mistake. She's gone off the rails. You've got to fix it. Zechariah asks for a writing tablet and reiterates precisely what Elizabeth had said. His name is John. While they're all looking at each other, trying to figure out what's going on, why the break from tradition immediately in verse 64, as he writes this down, Zechariah is able to speak. His mouth is open after nine months and he begins blessing God in verse 65 and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him strange 
naming, the Father's restored voice. These were extremely mysterious and different. What is happening? Something's going on. Whatever is coming about here, God is working to create a sense of excitement and curiosity and longing. It's clear this is no ordinary birth. It's no ordinary child. That's how settled these traditions were. For them to change meant something. For Elizabeth to give birth after all this time. It's clear this is no ordinary birth or child. What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Could it finally be? In the hills of Judea, God is going to fulfill His promise to Abraham and to David. Verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What Mary proclaimed as this expression of pious faith in God, Zechariah the priest articulates in this very structured poetry that, by the way, Luke's intended audience could have used for catechesis, his purpose for learning, that is. Zechariah's hymn embraces both the Old Testament and the New Testament by describing God's mighty acts of salvation in the past and how John the Baptist and Jesus will bring these mighty acts to fulfillment. The first part of the first stanza deals with the Lord God of Israel and what God has done for Israel in the past in verses 68 to 75, while the second part contains Zechariah's prophetic announcements based on what God is now going to do through His Son, John the Baptist in verses 76 to 79. The text says Zechariah prophesied. Prophecy would take on a much more important role in the early church of the New Testament, but it was thought to have died out by this time. You have to remember, it's been 400 years since God has spoken His Word through a prophet in Israel directly. So the fact that Zechariah received the gift of prophecy was a miracle and a sign in and of itself that a new era had dawned. Something is happening. God is on the move to accomplish something. To prophesy didn't and doesn't necessarily mean telling the future. More than that, it's inspired speech that is directed by the Holy Spirit. It contains a message or something the speaker couldn't say on his own, or at least couldn't bring out on his own if all he had was his own resources and his own thoughts. This is a deeply um, Hebraic poem. The way it's written, it's very Hebrew, where the pictures and memories from Israel's history get increasingly clearer or more precise as the prophecy goes on. Just like in Mary's song of praise, God's mighty deeds in the past, and now this intervention in the present, that's the central theme. God is acting as He had before. Zechariah praises God because He's visited and redeemed His people. 
He's stepped into their history with what is happening. He's fulfilled the promise through the prophets. All that He said He would do through them. Zechariah sees all that coming to fulfillment in this moment with, because of what is happening around Him. God comes to save the people from their enemies. It's also like Mary's song, and that is faith is so sure that these things will come to pass. He's so reinforced in this by the Holy Spirit that He talks about these things as how they've already happened. Even before they're actually fulfilled or actually accomplished. That's how certain the Word of God is. That's how exciting the Holy Spirit moving to bring these things about is. Faithful Jews, like Zechariah, still believe in a new kingdom of David where Israel's children would be able to serve God without fear of all their enemies, fear that it would go away, fear that God's blessing would be removed in holiness and in righteousness. No more turning from His Word and turning to idolatry, but serving Him in holiness and righteousness. Now, these words wouldn't have come about in this way if this hymn of praise had been written 50 years earlier. It required the coming of the Messiah. The fulfillment of these words most certainly comes, but it didn't look like what those hearing these words thought it would look like. When we read them now, we read them as Christians. We, by the Holy Spirit and by God's revelation in Christ, understand precisely what Zechariah was talking about, even more than Zechariah could have understood what he was talking about. Like all the prophets, Peter talks about this in First Peter chapter 1, that all the Old Testament, Old Covenant revelation prior to the coming of Christ they didn't even really know what they were seeing. They couldn't because Christ hadn't come yet, but the Word of God was no less certain or sure. We know that Abraham is also our father. That the promises of the prophets applied to all people, even us. That we've been saved from every spiritual enemy we have. Sin, death, and hell. And by the power of God's indwelling Holy Spirit, we now serve Christ in holiness and in righteousness before Him all our days because of what Christ has done for us. Because His perfection has been imputed to us. Even the works that we do that are tainted by our own flesh or by our own misunderstanding, God considers them holy and righteous because we're all wrapped up in the righteousness and perfection of Christ. The horn of salvation He speaks of in verse 69. That's, that's a loaded term for them as they hear it. It, it, it's an Old Testament picture of power and strength. Think of a, a tower or a banner when you see that word. Here it references the Messiah Himself, God's tower of salvation, banner of salvation over us. Right. The second part of this prophecy details the role of John the Baptist in all this, Zechariah's son, as the one who will be the forerunner to this Messiah. So before God brings His Son into public ministry to proclaim the kingdom, he sends a forerunner to prepare the people as Isaiah the prophet prophesied and Malachi would be the case. Here Jesus comes into the picture with the utmost seriousness. He, Zacharias seems to be referencing different prophecies of the Messiah as in maybe Numbers 24:17, a star, the idea of light is here, will proceed from Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. There are hints of Isaiah 9-2, right? That a great light would shine over all those who walk in darkness and life in the land of the shadow of death. All that imagery is here. That hour has come. In Greek, the 
Um, words and images for light from Zechariah here refer specifically to light's uh, ascension, that light is rising like an offshoot of David's dynasty here in the promised Messiah. All these hopes for salvation, for holiness and righteousness and guidance and redemption from death, they're all about to be fulfilled hopes. They're all about to come true. And in that way, Zechariah's prophecy is really a test case for why, by and large, the Jewish people rejected Jesus. They looked at their prophecies. They thought it would look like this. They thought it would all happen at once, and it didn't. The majority of the Old Testament prophecies, the majority of them refer to the era of salvation, which Jesus brings in His first coming, which is accomplished by His life and death and resurrection and ascension back to the Father. The images they paint and the freedom and light and life and joy of which they speak refer to what Jesus is going to do for the world in salvation, in saving people from their sins. The prophets used images that would have had traction for Old Covenant Israel when they heard them. He used language that they would say, oh, if it's going to be like that, it's going to be amazing and wonderful. But we don't realize, we don't realize even today that we're not above the Israelites that rejected Jesus. We're not smarter than they are, better than they are, more loved by God than they are. That's not the case at all. But we as human beings don't realize how salvation is the really big deal in the Bible, in life, in reality, in the world. Nothing is bigger, better, more amazing than salvation. There's nothing that shakes the foundations of the earth or of time or of history like salvation. We don't realize that salvation is God's greatest and most amazing earth-shattering act. It's the big deal. We want what you see in a movie. We want it to be like that. No, every time a sinner is saved, in that moment, in that person, is the truth of the ages coming about. It's the most amazing thing that can happen in reality. People ask, does God still do miracles today? You mean big things like, like a person getting healed on the spot, which is a huge thing. But it's nothing in comparison to a sinner getting saved. Nothing compared to that. When God saves sinners freely, freely, considering how holy and righteous God is, by the person and work of Jesus Christ, it is the reversal of nature happening. It's the reversal of nature. It's the reversal of what is normal. It's the reversal, the undoing of what justice demands and what God requires. When sinners are forgiven of all their sin by the blood of God made flesh in Christ and sinners are made righteous and perfect by the work of God made flesh in Christ, the effect of that is greater than the sky going dark. It's greater than the sun being blotted out and the earth reeling and rocking. There is no greater miracle, no greater sign of God's power than salvation. All other signs and victories and deliverances, they are all true. They all happen. They are all real. They are all amazing, but they are shadows and types of the great salvation God won for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. If there's any attempt at an explanation of why we don't see the same amount of miracles that Jesus was doing in His own time, why don't we see that like today? Because what Jesus was doing that for 
has been accomplished. He was trying to say, I have the power to save you. And the final sign, the sign of this is the cross. That has happened. It's finished. You can have Jesus. You can have eternal life. The statement has been made. That is the greatest move of God in the world. And Zechariah prophesies, prophesies of a day when because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That line, right? Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The dawn of that day approaches with the birth of John the Baptist. And that's why Zechariah is prophesying. Verse 80, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he, he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So, the story ends with this little note about the upbringing of John the Baptist. He was an outsider in Judea. He was different by the time he came onto the scene. It's written of him in Scripture, so it must have been very noticeable. He was set apart for something unusual. He was from the womb. He grew. He matured in the wilderness, which of course he did. The place of testing, keeping to himself. He bided his time until God called him to appear to Israel to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. If you had been an Israelite, in that time, would you have thought that the greatest need you had with the Romans occupying your territory, with the covenant having been spurned for over 400 years, would you have thought that the sign of God's great move upon the earth was the forgiveness of your sins? Would you have bought into that? that, that why are you worried about that? Can't you just like say that? Like... like there are plenty of other things. There are plenty of other issues that need taken care of. In that sense, so when you see Jesus going around and healing this leper and caring for this widow's son, you're thinking, okay, all right, that's great, that's great, it's great. But like, can you kill Caesar? Like, can we just, right? Are, are we not like this today? Tony, yeah, salvation, yeah, that's great. The forgiveness of sins, man, that's awesome, that's great. But like, can we get to the, for the lost person in here? For the struggling believer that's about to abandon their faith because they don't believe it because they can't get it right? Can I get to what for them? Right? Beloved, we need to see salvation as central as God does in His plan for the world. We are meant knowledge here in this text is a synonym for faith. We are meant to believe that the forgiveness of sins has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Mankind has no greater need than the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't mean there aren't other needs. It doesn't mean Christians in the church don't try to meet those needs and help and serve 
Absolutely, we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. There's no question about this. But if we're talking about for what or why, beloved, for the forgiveness of sins, to know Christ, to know Christ, to know that He has come for you and to receive Him as your Savior. This is the knowledge of the greatest truth in all reality. So, at this point in the infancy narrative, the entire gospel has been proclaimed in Mary's Magnificat and Zachariah's what has traditionally been called Benedictus. Both retell God's marvelous saving activity and foreshadow the themes of John and Jesus' life. And I want us to focus here in these last few moments on those last phrases in verses 77 to 79. To give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's golden hour for humanity. This is it. This is the hour when the truth is shining most brightly. When the colors are perfect for your salvation. Christian, this message is also for you. It's also for you. Don't get stuck in the rut where you think the Gospel is for non-Christians and the law or the instructions for life are for you. Now, if you're leaning on your own progress in the faith or on your own good works as the assurance and confirmation of your, of, of your salvation, you do need to hear the law. And the law needs to do what God gave it to do if you're in that posture towards Him. It needs to destroy you and kill you and remind you that God's standard is way too high and you are nowhere near meeting it even on your best day with your best efforts and your least amount of sins. Yes, if that's the position you're in, you need the law. You need to be reminded, oh, I'm not actually keeping the law anyway. I'm still not doing all that has been commanded of me with perfection of motive and performance. Because if that's not what you're doing, you have zero reason to rely on the law. Zero reason to have assurance if that's what you're looking to for assurance. Your works are not good enough. Your best is not good enough. Your intentions, your desire to be as pleasing to God as possible, it's not good enough. Jesus didn't say, now therefore you must want to be perfect because your Heavenly Father is perfect. No, no, no. If you want to be justified, assured, given confidence by your obedience to the law, you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect then you can take comfort in looking at the law for your assurance. But until then, until you're perfect, this is what you need. This is what you need. The law in the, in the life of the Christian doesn't change functions. The law is holy and righteous and good. And as such, the main thing it does is condemn me for not keeping it perfectly. So I must always, Lord, I want to do right. I want to do good works. The Holy Spirit is in you when you have those desires, when the fruit of the Spirit is being produced by you. But, beloved, that's happening in a body of death. 
in a body of death where the flesh and the old Adam are still alive and well and kicking. May the law drive you back to Christ for all your standing before God. If you think for a moment, yeah, I don't need to hear about the forgiveness of sins. I need to hear about what I should do today, right? I had an elder, an elder in the last church I was in say to me, I don't need to hear about the sufficiency of Jesus every Sunday. I need you to tell me like how to love my wife. My brother, you're older than me. You've been married longer than me. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. How are you doing on that? I, I don't have that. I don't know the steps to make you love your wife better, Christian husband. I know that if you aren't loving her as much as Christ loved the church, you're condemned. That's what the law does. Now, the Christian doesn't say, since I can't do it, I, I don't care. I'll just do whatever I want. No, 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 no. The Christian says, because we've been enlightened, God help me. I'm not loving my wife like I'm commanded to love my wife. Help me. And that's why you need to know your sins are forgiven. He's not casting you out because you can't love your wife. Do you really think we've ever spent 60 seconds of our lives, Mary, loving our wives like Christ loves the church? We need Jesus. Like that, that message is for everybody in this room. Whether you've been saved for a couple months or for 60 years. Convincing us of that is the task of preaching. Our flesh will even twist what grace actually is. We'll twist that and think of it as actually what grace from God is, is a reward for good behavior. After all, there are still consequences to sin in real time, even if you're saved, right? If, if, you, if you're saved and you commit certain crimes, you could end up in prison. And it's not like being saved or getting saved in prison is, is like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It, very rarely, if ever, is going to work that way. So there, you, you can make a mess of your life by committing a sin, and being forgiven of it is not going to make the mess go away. And so we, we, we think, okay, if that's the case then, since God's grace would forgive me for murder, but it doesn't get me off of death row, then maybe God's grace is technically not for real sinners. Right? Because if you really blow it and this life is all there is and it doesn't fix everything in this life, you spurn the gift. Maybe the message is really that God will be gracious to you if you prove yourself by staying in line your whole life. And so that's what a church is. In that thinking. It's, it's not... It's not a place for sinners to be forgiven. Real sinners. It, it's a place where people that know better and take God seriously enough are welcome. And if you're really a mess, if, if you, look, we're all sinners. But if you've ever really pulled the pin on the sin grenade and destroyed your life, you know, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're welcome here. We would never make you leave, but like, you're not going to feel like you belong. 
right? You're not going to you're not going to ever be confident that what Jesus did, He did for you. You're going to take a lot more, you know, to to get what you need from Jesus. But those of us, you know, again, those of us who actually need it because we're sinners, that's that's really grace is will save you, but really you kind of need to live up to it. It's unsaid, right? Most of the bad things we believe are unsaid because when we say them out loud, we know they're wrong and we're accountable for them. It's, it's not people who have just, right? Grace is, is for people that have just, they've made some mistakes, but they want to do well. You know, this message is for you. I, I, I wish I could be that. What about the person, have you ever thought about that? If you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit, you should come. What if you don't? What if you don't? Is it not for you? Is forgiveness not for you unless you do something first? We don't believe that. No, it's, it's, for, it's for that. Grace is for that. Merit Like, I'll meet you halfway, you take the first step, I'll take the rest of them. That's merit-based. It's merit-based. There's a place where Christ is not, and that's where you're responsible for the first step. Did Jesus not forgive the sin of not wanting to take the first step? So He actually didn't die for all sins. Just the ones that you're willing to bring up. Jesus will reject you if you bring your own dish to the banquet. He'll reject you. Grace is not for the well-meaning and the try-hards and the I'm not that embarrassed about my records. And nobody should think that's what they are. The cross should be convincing us I am not what I thought. If that's what it took For me to get saved, I am not what I thought. My works really are filthy rags. If God won't accept any of them and only accept what He did. If you come dressed in your best and think that's why you'll get in, Jesus will reject you. Somebody will always be there to pump the brakes on the grace train so that nobody gets it in their head that it's for you when you genuinely need it. Right? We are all in desperate need of the knowledge of salvation and we find it in the person of Jesus Christ. The most important thing you need to know, Christian, is that God's light is shining and your sins are forgiven. God's mercy has visited you. He will never again be bent towards you in wrath. When you sin and blow it now, you do it as His dear child. And He will not forsake you or throw you out of His home. Parents, you probably know, depending on how old your kids are, the feeling when they are making a mess out of their lives or bad decisions or rejecting your love for them. It kills you. It doesn't make you hate them. Now, we are human beings and eventually even our best love will run cold. No question. We don't love like God does. 
but you know what it's like to be pulled towards your child because they're blowing it and not want to reject them. And if we who are evil know how to give that kind of good love to our children, how much more will the Father love those of His own who keep running away? No, He, he, he won't leave you on hanging from the side of the cliff, little sheep. Right? I told you not to go down there. I told you not to do that. You had it in my word. You made your decision and now you're paying the price. I told you not to go down there. No, he'll leave all the other sheep and climb down and get his hands bloody and dirty to pull you off the cliff. Not because your sin is nothing, but because he loves you and his light is shining and he means to forgive you and has forgiven you and it's finished. You don't have to reach up and take his hand. He's going to take yours. Don't sin against him. Why would we sin against that? Why would we squander that? Why do we do that? Well, we do. Whether it's murder or not saying a kind word when we have the opportunity to say a kind word. Sin is sin in that sense. You don't need to get resaved. You don't need to rededicate your life to Him. What we all need as struggling believers is to know what God has done and said once and for all in His Son, Jesus Christ. Receive the knowledge of that again today for you. Jesus did this for you. And you, and you, and you, and yes, you. God's tender mercy is what has visited the world in the day you and I live. Uh, we know the end is coming. We know that judgment is coming. Yes and amen. But today, the tender mercy of God has visited this world. Tender mercy. Tender. He loves you. He is for you. That's not for your self-esteem. Your self-esteem is part of the reason you sin. And you don't need to hate yourself and be self-deprecating. But I promise you the biggest problem you have is not that you don't love yourself. That's the biggest problem you have. You love yourself. Unbelievers, those of you doubting that Christ is for you, you must hear this and receive His Word as yours also. If your position this morning is that you're sitting in darkness, unsure of where to turn next, knowing that you're guilty before God, the message of the text for you is that God came to give you light this day so that you would no longer sit in darkness. To those of you sitting in the shadow of death this morning, His Word for you is not that you must stay there and pay your debt and maybe He'll accept you. It's that He means to guide you out from sin and death into life and peace. This is the golden hour. Take advantage of it. The light is perfect right now. To see clearly, the light is perfect. Salvation and forgiveness come to us in the form of God's great promises 
all fulfilled for us in Christ. The God that means to save you and keep you is the great promise keeper. He is the one who is called faithful and true and we all need one who is faithful and true and will never change in these things. If he isn't like that, we have no hope. We aren't just guilty for the sins that we're aware of and for the perfection we know that we're falling short of. What about where we don't know when we're sinning? Does he Is he there? What if I can't list it all? Is he there? All that Jesus is, he is for you. No exceptions. In fact, the only exception, and it still doesn't exclude you, is if you think this message isn't for you, but it's for somebody else. All that means is that we don't understand what sin is and how God sees it. We have things on a scale of what would really condemn you and what surely God's not going to, you know, He's not beloved. Don't reject life and light and peace. Don't do it. There's peace to be had in rest. There's anxiety to be had in faithlessness. Rest. Receive Christ for you in keeping all His promises. Salvation has dawned for us to receive the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ.